You're listening to TIP. And this guy will be like 70 years old. He's like, you know, came from the industry back in like the 70s. And he's he's like, absolutely not. Like, this is the way business is done for small businesses. And I was like, have you set up a Facebook page? And like, have you ever tried to go and run any kind of like digital ads? And like... In this week's episode, I talk with Connor Gross about entrepreneurship, how he started and sold his first business while in college, what he's working on today, how he leveraged his entrepreneurial success into real estate, all about self-storage, and much, much more. Connor Gross is a successful entrepreneur in the real estate and e-commerce industries and co-host of the Next Generation podcast. I've heard a lot about the e-commerce industry and some of the success that people have had with it, but I haven't had the chance to really dive into it yet, so I enjoyed finally getting the opportunity to learn about it from Connor in this episode. I hope you guys enjoy it too. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Connor Gross. Connor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. You started out on a relatively traditional path of studying engineering, I believe it was, at a university in Boston. But in college, things changed a bit and you started down a different path. Before you started down the entrepreneurial path, did you plan on working a normal nine to five career for most of your life? Or had you always had it in the back of your mind that you eventually wanted to get into entrepreneurship? So I did actually study entrepreneurship at college, uh, was kind of like the main major that I went in with. And both of my parents are entrepreneurs. Like they've been either buying or starting businesses for over the past decade at this point. So it's always kind of like been a little bit a part of me. And I feel like I'll be honest, growing up with parents who run their own business. I think even if the business is small, which you know my parents run a small business, it's a huge competitive advantage just because you get to see like, oh, there are other options out there. Whereas I know a bunch of my friends and even people in their 30s and 40s typically don't realize that that becomes an option until much later in their life. So I would definitely say I always knew I wanted to go into entrepreneurship and start my own thing. Now, I'll be honest, like the way to go and approach it was always a little like unclear to me. And I feel like even like after graduating college, despite having like an exit in college, like I got a job for nine months because for me, it was really important to like have cash flow and like that's what everyone else was doing. And it took a good nine months before I really figured out like, mm, you know, this job is awesome, but it's not for me. And ever since then, I've pretty much been all in drinking the Kool-Aid for entrepreneurship. What was your job after college? I worked at a Shopify app. It's called Privy. Basically, the school I went to Northeastern up in Boston, we had this whole co-op program where it's like you get full six-month internships where you can work for like any company you want. They give you like a whole database of companies everywhere from Google to Apple to Airbnb and whatever you want. But I always found it was best just to cold email a bunch of companies that I wanted to work for. And so like my sophomore year, I got a really sick job at this startup company called Drift at the time. They were basically just growing enterprise SaaS business. And I got to work with them on like sales, marketing, all that stuff. Met a really cool guy from there. His name's Dave Gerhardt. And I got to go and basically work directly under him for a full six months. And by the time it came for graduating college, I was like, Dave, what's up, man? Like, I loved working for you in college. Can I come work for you full time? Got an offer that way and worked with him for that full nine months. What were you doing as part of that job? Were you in sales? I was in marketing. So, basically, the nice part about doing a bunch of internships in college is like you can kind of figure out what you want to do. I did everything from like customer success to marketing, like, quickly realized I hated customer success. And between sales and marketing, I figured I wanted something that was a little bit more strategic. And that's why I went down the marketing route versus like an entry level sales route. We just did mostly product marketing. It was a lot of like coming up with case studies, talking about how the product benefits people, like figuring out like in a software product, what does the user see to begin with and how do we get them to go and like use and upgrade more in the product? So a lot of that stuff. We'll talk about your actual stories, what you're building, what you've built, but just from a high level, have you utilized a lot of what you learned in that role and maybe even in your internship and what you've built yourself? Yes and no. So yes, in the sense that like there's a ton of intangible skills. That like you really just can't teach someone unless like you've been there and done that. As examples, the reason I wanted to work for these guys specifically is because I know they're good when it comes to marketing. And so like I got my copywriting chops really like proofread and like got a ton of edits and revisions and all that stuff. So like now if I have to go out and write like a sales email or I have to go and like put together a deck to like storytell to a customer, I feel very confident in my ability to do that. Know from the standpoint that I don't own any software businesses today. 
And so there's a ton of really tactical stuff, everything from like webinars to product-led drip emails, things like that, that were really tactical in my day-to-day job that I don't really utilize that as much. But like a lot of the core fundamental stuff of copywriting, storytelling, things like that, that I went into the job trying to get out, I'm able to apply those to other areas in my life for sure. Back when you were in college, you had a successful business and a pretty interesting story about a phone wallet. Walk us through that story. <laughs> Basically, uh, I got to Northeastern my freshman year. And like I said, my parents are entrepreneurial. So like, I was just like, I want to start something in college. Like, I don't really care what it is. I could be selling anything from like billboard space ads or like water bottles, anything that runs the game. And that's just basically my direct review, which is why I called out those two products. But I ended up meeting up with one of my business partners earlier on in college. And he had the same thought process. He's like, I want to sell something. I was like, cool, me too. And we went around like a bunch of student fairs and stuff, things like that. We didn't really know what we wanted to sell or what we wanted to start a company out of. And the student fairs were giving out like the free pens, the free notebooks. And one of the things we noticed that they were giving out that we've never actually seen prior to college were like these stick on the back of your phone card holders. Basically, they would have like company logos on them, like a Lyft logo or like the local real estate company's logo on them. And what we noticed is like everyone was using them. Everyone would put them on because now this is like really the first time in your life after high school where like you have to carry around a credit card and you have to carry around a student ID and stuff like that. And what's crazy to us is like we were friends with a bunch of these girls at the time, and like they all have like a hundred dollar phone cases, and they're just slapping on this ugly thing on the back of their phone. And so we're like, huh? What if we like made them slightly better designs and just try to sell those? And this is like when we were eighteen, so we had no idea what the hell we were doing. And so we were like, let's do that. So we found some manufacturers over in China. We went on Alibaba. We got a bunch of like quotes and stuff, and found a supplier. We were like two thousand of these things to our dorm room. And so, like looking back on it, it was just like kind of a crazy experience because you know we got to the point where we were making like forty thousand unit orders. But when we ordered two thousand of them and had nowhere to store them, our roommates who were like helping us pick this stuff up from residence mail, they were like, "What are you guys doing?" And we were like, "We're just gonna try to sell these things." And so we went and tried to sell them all around campus. Like we didn't even think to go and sell them online at first. We were just like, "Who's willing to buy one of these things?" And our friends, being good friends, were all like, "Yeah, like we'll support you guys. Like we'll definitely go on and like buy some." Turns out we don't have two thousand friends. Uh, so after like a hundred sales, we were like, "All right, now what?" And it basically came down to like, "Let's start a website." Oh, like no one's buying off our website. Okay, let's try Etsy. Oh, like we're getting a few sales off Etsy. Like, is there a bigger marketplace that we can sell on? And we finally got to Amazon. And so basically, like the progression of sales from like when we started getting on Amazon to when we sold the business, we're basically I think that first year we did just north of thirty k. The second year we did about one hundred and fifty k. This is I think I want to say like twenty seventeen or something like that. About one hundred and fifty k. Then we did eight hundred and fifty k. And then we did 1.2, and then we sold the business that year that we did 1.2. So yeah, overall, there's like a lot of like mini lessons and stories in there. Everything from like working for ourselves full time and like leaving school for six months, we get to like travel over to like China and Bali to like kind of like work on some stuff remotely and do some supply chain stuff. But overall, it was like a really good experience because we were able to have you know this big exit right before we even graduated from college, and it kind of set us up nicely for post grad. Had there been anybody making those cases yet? I mean, I'm looking at it now from this perspective, you know, 2022, I see those cases everywhere. Were you guys like one of the first people to go and put them on Amazon or were they kind of already on the marketplace? We were definitely early to Amazon, but I think what we did better than anyone else is we realized the technical keyword term that a lot of competitors will try to rank for is like stick on card holder. That's basically like what the keyword is that gets a good amount of search traffic. There's this other keyword out there called phone pockets, which basically is just like a term that kids in college use. And we knew that it was a term because we were one of those kids in college. And so we put the word phone pocket a bunch in our description and our product headline and all that kind of stuff. And that got us really high in terms of Amazon ranking. So now if you go on Amazon, there's hundreds of competitors out there, but some of our old listings are still like the top one or two search results. Why didn't you leave school? I mean, it sounds like the business was doing well. Why didn't you just kind of go for it? I was having fun. Honestly, it's a question I've gotten a handful of times from other people in the past. There were times when we were considering it, but like I have hundreds of friends in college. Like I was in a fraternity, I was in a bunch of clubs. I loved the idea of just kind of like messing around, like having fun with my friends. Like for me at the time, and even still now today, like the goal isn't necessarily like, could we have built a $10 million business back in college? It was more like, could we go and build a business and still have fun with our friends on the weekends and not really like worry too much about school and things like that? So I think anyone who's like, yeah, you guys should have dropped out. Like, I bet we could have built a way bigger business. But the nice part is with Northeastern, like like I said earlier, they have these co-op programs. So it's like six months full-time internships for yourself. We were actually able to convince the school to let us work full-time on the business for six months. That's kind of the year that we went from like 150 to 850 in sales. So we could tell that it worked when we were going full-time. 
And then, you know, after that, we were just like, all right, let's just go back to classes and like, let this thing run outside. And they did on autopilot for the most part. What were you doing during those six months that you were able to work on it full time? Like, what did you do that really moved the needle from 150 to 850? The number one thing was just launch just like a ton more products. Like we went like our product catalog went from like 10 to 80. And so we launched a ton more, which took up a ton of real estate on Amazon's pages. It was that, that was probably the biggest needle mover from a sales standpoint. From an operation and logistics standpoint, we got to the point where we redid our entire supply chain. Uh, so we got to the point where like, we weren't even touching the products at the end of the day. It went right from China, straight to Amazon's warehouses, straight to the customer. That saved a ton of time for us. And then there was a lot of like, other stuff, making sure like, all of the stuff that were coming in, we had processes for like, hiring a virtual assistant to like, do customer support. You know, Somebody to come on and like, update all of our product photos and like, t- conversion rate testing for our product pages, things like that. It was a lot of like, high-level stuff. But hands down, the biggest thing that got us there was like 5 to 10xing our product catalog. When you went back to school, I've heard some stories that entrepreneurs have the Shopify kind of ding noise or jingle that goes off on their phone. And you know, were you sitting in class and, and just looking at your phone and just seeing the sales roll in? Well, yes, but no. So one could not have that notification on, otherwise my phone battery would die in like three hours. Keep in mind, like, and this is for advice for anybody who wants to go and start an e-commerce business later on, sell something that's more than $10. Like our product was eight or nine dollars, I want to say, but you know, cost us like 30 cents to make. So like we had really strong margins still, but they're like dollar margins, not like tens or hundreds of dollar margins. And so like we would probably get to the point like some days we would sell 400 products. No, probably even more like like 400 or 500 products or something like that. And so if I had the thing open up throughout the day, it's just bing, bing, bing. Right. So instead it would be a lot more of like I would open up my Amazon seller app. And based on the time of the day, I would have roughly a good idea in terms of like where we're going to go and end up with for sales of the day. So like if I knew that we sold 200 by noon, I knew that it was pretty reasonable that we we're going to go and get to like 350 sales by the end of the day. But definitely for anyone listening to this right now, like please sell something more expensive. There's money to be made, sure. Like I'm an example of that, but there's much easier ways for money to be made for sure. You mentioned that you had to travel. Well, maybe you didn't have to, but you chose to to go to China and some other foreign countries. Was that just for supply chain and finding manufacturers? And walk us through what that was like a bit. Yeah. So the China one is a lot of visiting fairs. So like we would go over to Hong Kong and we would go to like these big trade shows to try to find new suppliers, also to meet with existing suppliers and talk about like product line expansion and stuff. And then, you know, occasionally we'd visit like a manufacturer, like warehouse or something like that, or like an actual factory. What you'll notice when you work with Chinese manufacturers is when you show up in person, it totally changes their opinion of you. It changes like their opinion of like the business relationship, and they're willing to kind of like bend over backwards and like give you way better like terms in terms of like paying for things and all that stuff. I don't know why. I don't really know if it's like a cultural thing, but like everyone I've talked to with sources from China says that like when you show up, your business with them, even if you were working for them for like three years prior, it'll dramatically change. So that was a really big one. And then the other one that like it took a lot of convincing for the school to like let us go on this co-op for ourselves for six months full time. So you probably not be super surprised when we emailed our advisor being like, Hey, listen, like these last two months out of the six month co-op, we're going to go over to Bali and we're going to go work from Bali for the next two months. And he was like, what? And we were like, but like our sales have been growing. Like we're like clearly doing work. And he's like, all right, fine. But like, you have to keep the same meeting time. There would literally be times when like, I think I want to say it was like 3 PM Eastern standard time. They're like, we'd have to wake up in Bali at like 3 AM because our advisor is like, no, like we have to still meet at 3 PM. We're like, I think you're just doing this to mess with us, but like, that's fine. As long as we're over here for like the next two months, so we don't really care. Were you in Bali for just kind of to work and live there? Or were you getting supplies there? Oh no, purely lifestyle based. Yeah. It was just like, Hey, well, this could be kind of cool to like work over here. And keep in mind, this is after we fixed our whole supply chain. So like prior to this point, we would be getting in like monthly shipments of tens of thousands of units. I have to like sort them out, like pick, pack, repackage, deliver to the Amazon, things like that. Now we're like, oh, like we kind of run a location independent business now. Like let's go and do this over in Indonesia. Uh, and that was kind of like the plan there. How were you as a student in school at this point? Were you straight A's 4.0? Were you, were you kind of more squeaking by? What was your kind of school situation like at that point? I graduated like I don't remember the exact GPA. I want to say it was like a three nine or something like that. I think from my standpoint, the best thing I would tell anyone is like I don't think GPA really matters that much. I personally have a really hard time half-assing things. So like, yeah, the stuff that I'm learning in my intro to marketing class, like my junior year of college, I've learned way more doing other businesses. I still don't feel like I have it in me enough 
to go and just totally say, screw this, screw the class. Like I'm not going to go and work on anything anymore. For me, it was more like the thing that I honestly don't tell most people is like when I went to Northeastern, did not have the grades to qualify for that school at all. And like, I think I just did a ton of extracurriculars in high school. And so like for me going into that school was like, I can't believe I got into school. And I almost like came in with a little bit of like a chip on my shoulder, like really wanted to go and like prove that like I belonged to some degree. And so like any chance I had to like get an A in the class or like kind of go above and beyond, I definitely tried to go and make a point out of it. But going back to the original question, yeah, my motivation definitely waned a ton as the business picked up because I'd get into situations where like I would get an argument with teachers. They'll go on for two lessons about how like print media is really important in marketing. And I would just raise my hand and be like, hey, there's way better ways to do it. And like, I'll be honest, like, I think you're wasting a lot of people in this class's time by like teaching them this stuff. And this guy will be like 70 years old. He's like, you know, came from the industry back in like the 70s. And he's like, he's like, absolutely not. Like, this is the way business is done for small businesses. And I was like, have you set up a Facebook page? And like, have you ever tried to go and run any kind of like digital ads? And like, I say this now, that sounds super condescending and like kind of like a jerk. I wouldn't try to be a jerk. I would just really like push a lot of my professors to be like, hey, I know you guys are really good at teaching. This is your job. I think it, it would be much more valuable if you taught students skills that they could actually go and use on a day-to-day basis. What you explained is exactly what I was thinking. Is like, how do you sit in a marketing class, like you said, where they're teaching one thing that you're literally implementing in the real world in a real business is actually working? And I kind of had a similar experience in my finance, my MBA. Like these teachers were teaching these very academic financial investing concepts, and I'm like. Like about pricing models specifically. And I'm like, that's just not how it works when you invest. Like, you cannot just run a model and say that something is worth this. And then it, you know, it, this is just not how it works. You know, in theory, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, but in practice, that's not true. And the best way to go and communicate that with them, because if you start telling them they're wrong, then they'll just grade your test harder and they'll just like make your life worse. The best way to do it is honestly just take the theoretical thing that they're talking about and be like, cool, can you go and provide an example of how people are doing that in the world today? And oftentimes, what I noticed for most of my classes, they'll be like, yeah, Sears is like running their pricing models this way. I'm like, Sears is almost out of business, dude. Like they'll say examples of like a case study around like GE. And I'm almost like, honestly, GE has not been like, had a really profitable, like groundbreaking quarter since like the early 2000s. So typically that's the easiest way to go and communicate back and forth with them is be like, just give us more up-to-date examples. Like 90% of the kids that are leaving your class today are going to probably go and work for a consulting firm or you know, big tech company or something like that. They're not going to be working for like one of these like PNGs or Unilevers or something like that. So like, how can they go and apply this to their own real world scenario? But yeah, it definitely gets a little bit frustrating towards the end. I will say like, I still find college valuable from two standpoints. One, like what we talked about earlier socially, I find that like it's definitely still worth it to like have fun and like go make friends and like like that's was really cool for me. And the second thing is from an insurance policy standpoint. So like, okay, all my businesses go to zero tomorrow. I have this piece of paper that says like I'm qualified for something and I won't have too much of an issue finding a job after that. And maybe this is coming from a point of arrogance, but I do think that like college provides a good insurance policy and a good social program. And when it comes to learning the actual skills that you need to go and like perform well, either in a job or a career, I think it falls short pretty aggressively. Tell us a bit about the sale of the business. How did that come about? What was that like? Yeah. So basically the sale of the business was like, our goal is going to their senior year of college. We we're like, what do we want to do with this thing? And from our standpoint, it was like, well, we could go and like turn down the retail route and like try to get the Facebook ads work on our own website again. Cause like, remember at this point, we were just really selling on Amazon. We were like a one trick pony on Amazon. We we're like, we could go and spend, you know, we graduate from school, we do all that. And then we just spend like the next two to three years building out this thing, building out a retail division, creating an actual brand, not just a product that people find on Amazon. And we could do that. And we kind of like both looked at each other. Like, I think we were drinking at a bar when we were talking about this. And we we're just like, we don't want to do that. I was like, do you want to do that? Because I certainly don't want to do that. He's like, absolutely not. And so we were like, all right, well, let's just see if someone wants to buy this then. Because like, I don't want to shut it down of anything with a cash flow, but like, could also be nice to like graduate from college and like have a nice win under our belt or something. So we decided to go and list it on one of these marketplaces. I want to say it was Empire Flippers is who we used. And so we listed it. And it was like eight months of like a lot of nothing. And we're like, oh, I guess we don't have that much of a sellable business. <laughs> and so we would take every month or two, we would take a call with like UPenn Wharton kids being like, I want to start a DJC business. And like, maybe I'll buy yours. And I'm like, all right, maybe like if you guys want to. But then like, they couldn't get the funding. And like, there would be like other people who like are strategic buyers and like run a portfolio of e commerce brands. And like, they wouldn't, they would just kind of come around like tire kick for a little bit, like get them a call. And so by the end of the eight months, I was just like, honestly, this doesn't really totally seem to be worth it. I was like, maybe we do this after school. It sounds like we can't really sell it. And like, I don't really know what the next best option is. And like, 
keep in mind, a lot of the businesses is on autopilot at this point. So like sales are still going up. We grew 50% versus like 800% the year before. And so it got to the part like, all right, maybe like we just won't do this. And so that conversation happened like the beginning of December of 2019, a couple months pre-pandemic, whatever. And then on Christmas morning, we get a calendar invite for the day after Christmas for another buyer call. And I was like, oh, like I don't really know if I want to do this, whatever like that. So anyway, like I went out drinking like Christmas night, whatever like that with like, my friends and family. And I was like super hungover on December 26th. Like my partner Gio texted me. It's like, yeah, we have this buyer call at like 10 a.m. It's like 9.46. And I'm like struggling to get out of bed or whatever. I was like, ah, like it's just gonna be another tire kicker, like whatever. And I get on the call and she's like, the buyer's on the call too. She's like, hey, like thanks for taking the call. I bought your product three times before. This is the exact type of business that I want to purchase. Like, let's do this thing. And this is like five minutes into the call. And I'm like, okay. I was like, this is like me like thinking like to skip this call. It's like, okay, maybe we go and do this. She hangs up the call. We talk to the broker. We're like, okay, like what's the deal? Like, you know, we've had some tire kickers in the past. Like, do you think she's actually serious? And he's like, yeah, she sounded like really serious. I was like, that's what I thought too. And like on the call, the broker's like, yo, she just wired the rest of the money for this sale. And I was like, what? I was like 15 minutes afterwards. Um, because like we were on the call for like an extra 10 or 15 minutes afterwards. And I was like, Okay. So we reached back out to her. We're like, Hey, it's December 26th. I'm guessing you're doing this for like a tax benefit, right? A little like right off of like this big purchase before the end of the year. But like, could we just have the sales date close on January 1st? So we don't pay taxes until the following year. She's like, yeah, I don't care. And I was like, okay, cool. And like my business partner, like came from like an investment banking background. He's like, this isn't normal. He's like, this is not how transactions go down. And it's crazy. Like we went through the diligence process. We went through like the migration process of like, Here's the trademark. Here's the logins. Here's the software. Here's like the credentials. I want to say money hit the bank account like February 15th. And like anyone listening to this right now who's like ever sold a business or bought a business, like just should know that's not how things normally turn around. It just was for us. I don't have a better answer than that. So, like, this is February 15th, spring semester of our senior year. We got money in the bank. And then, I want to say like a week later, we went to Cancun for spring break. And then the following week, COVID happened. And we we're like, huh, that was like a very weird like sequence of times. But like, the transition of like our VAs, our trademarks, our logins and all that stuff was like weirdly simple, which is nice. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. 
How has the business done with COVID? The things I know is it looks like they've had some stock issues. I'm not in the business, so I can't really comment on it. It looks like maybe they ran out of, some of the best sellers and like they haven't been replaced as much. I haven't honestly kept in contact with the new owner that much to see what they've been up to. I know that originally I was very excited to have sold when we sold because I don't know if anyone listening to this remembers, but there's like this like two to three month period in the beginning of 2020 when like COVID happened where Amazon was not shipping any non-essential items in two days. It would take like three weeks. And like, guess what? Like cell phone cardholder wallets are not essential items. And so like, I remember seeing our product listings after we had sold, they're like, this product will arrive in four weeks. And I was like, who is buying a phone wallet that's going to take a month to deliver anyway, when everyone's stuck in a house? So I was like, I got to imagine that a lot of sales dropped, but then there's also so many tailwinds with like e-commerce that maybe it picked up again. I really don't know that much. Do you ever go on Amazon and just kind of check out the brand and see what's going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look like it much has changed. So honestly, like I'm not entirely sure. Like maybe her strategy was to take it more retail and let Amazon just cash flow. I don't know. Honestly, I, I haven't really kept up to date with it that much. You know, when you buy it, we're talking on a real estate show here. We're going to talk about some yeah. of your real estate stuff in, in a little bit. But a lot of times in a real estate transaction, you don't know who's on the other side of the table. Like when you're selling a house, you don't know really much about the other person. And when you're buying, right. you don't really know a lot about them. So did you know much about her? Like was she, successful businesswoman? Like, what was her kind of her story? My understanding is that she'd run like two to three e-commerce brands in the past, scaled those up. And she also did like some kind of like Airbnb short-term rental management stuff. So like, just kind of seemed like a classic, like a serial entrepreneur, hustler, stuff like that. I really didn't know though, but like, that's kind of when all the negotiations started happening. It was like, it wasn't really much of a negotiation. Like she paid full asking price. And I started chatting with the broker. I was like, do you think she's going to close? And he's like, she originally put down like 50% for like proof of funds before like even like taking the call or whatever. So he's like, she has money, like she has some of the money, whatever. Um, but honestly, like from my standpoint, maybe this is a weird thing to say, but like we were never full time on the business for like years. Right. And so I know a lot of people who will sell their business and be like, this is my baby. Please take care of it. I want you to like, you know, treat it like you would like your own brand or whatever like that. From my standpoint, we were doing almost more of an arbitrage play than a brand standpoint. So like we had a name of the company, it was called Cardly. And like our friends and our family all knew it was called Cardly. And like I'll market it a little bit on Twitter and such like that, that it's called Cardly. But like for the average consumer buying this brand, they're buying an item on Amazon and that typically they don't care if it has a brand or not. And so I wasn't too upset when we sold regarding like, what is she going to go and do with the company? From my standpoint, I was more celebrating the fact that like, nice, we're 21 and 22. I was like, got the first win under our belt. And like now, like let's take this money and like invest it into something bigger. Um, that's kind of like where my mind was at. How did you know how to price what the business was worth? You know, like you got asking, could you have gotten more? Did she overpay? Like, how did you even know what the price is? Did you rely on a broker for that? Yeah, we had a broker. I'll be honest, we priced it very aggressively. So typical Amazon multiples, if you're in a purely Amazon FBA brand, which FBA means like fulfillment by Amazon, your private labeling products typically, they'll go like a 3x EBITDA. We, I think part of the reason it took eight months to sell the business is because we were like, let's do five. The broker was like, I don't think you're going to get any buyers at five. And we're like, well, let's see. Um, so we priced it pretty aggressively. And I think that's why it took so long to sell, but we were very happy with the outcome. Fast forward to today, you're back in e-commerce. I mean, you're doing a lot of other stuff too, but you're also back in e-commerce with a car and boat e-commerce brand. So for yeah. those continuously hearing about e-commerce and how popular it is, Break down for us exactly what an e-commerce business model is that's not just built on Amazon. And then tell us a bit about what you're building with your car and boat brand. Totally. Okay. So there's two main e-commerce processes that happen today. One is a lot of the arbitrage game, which will be drop shipping. And so you'll say like, hey, people want to go and buy this desk lamp. You can see that they're probably willing to pay like $40 for it. I'm able to find it on Alibaba for seven. Like just going on Facebook ads cost me $15 to acquire a customer. Cool. I'm making the difference. and I'm profiting there. That's the one way. It's getting a lot harder to go and do that model. Typically, you know, you'll get priced out by people who are willing to go and accept a lower profit margin than you are. So like, that's kind of like the old way that a lot of like the, these YouTube gurus and like course sellers will all go and like promote a lot. The way that we see a lot more these days is a lot more of a private label branded approach. So private label branded, basically private label, fancy way of just saying like, you have a brand. So like if I'm selling... Hydroflask, Hydroflask private label because I'm buying a Hydroflask and not just buying a thermos. So that way, in my opinion, is a much better long-term way to go and scale these kind of things. However, it becomes super cash constraining. 
And so what you'll notice with the drop shipping model is like a customer goes on, they buy your lamp for $40. Cool. Now you go and send $7 to your factory over in China and you make the difference, right? You're getting paid and then you're paying. So you have a really good cash conversion cycle. With private label and like building a brand and like creating like a hydro flask route, it's very cash constraining. So like if you don't have a lot of cash, it's very tough to go and become like a really big e-commerce brand because what you essentially have to go and keep on doing over and over again is let me go and buy a thousand water bottles. Cool. I just spent $10,000 for these thousand water bottles. Now let me go and sell them. And you're getting the money back one by one by one by one. And by the time you're about like 50% selling through all those water bottles, now you're like, cool. It takes me 30 days to get more product in. Now I have to go and buy another 2000 water bottles because the company's growing and I'm building my business. And so now all the profit and all the money you just made from this first thousand, you're reinvesting into larger inventory orders. And that's not even to mention like any of the marketing costs, the overhead costs, hiring employees, things like that. Now, at some point, you get big enough to the point where like you can negotiate terms with your suppliers and not have to go and pay them for 60 days. So you start getting paid before you have to pay them. Um, you're able to go and like raise your prices a little bit. If you have an actual brand, you can get a really good profit margin. So like a lot of the people that I talk, chat with in e-commerce today will say, like, do not even begin thinking about selling a product. Unless you have like minimum seventy five percent plus gross margins, so like if this water bottle, for example, if I'm selling for like ten dollars, like this water bottle cannot cost me more than two dollars and fifty cents to make. Otherwise, you just won't make it. Since you were not private label with your wallets, really, I mean, you had the brand, right? You had Cardly, but you weren't necessarily a private label. Did it not take a lot of cash to start, and how did you fund that from the initial beginning? Technically, this is where it gets a little confusing. We technically would have considered ourselves private label because if we're not necessarily doing a dropship arbitrage and like we own the brand at the end of the day. Like an example of something that wouldn't be private label is if I decided to go and sell Nike sweatpants on Amazon. That would not be private label. That would be more like retail arbitrage. The question around cash flow, basically, in the early days. Yeah. How did you fund like starting it? The first day you guys decide, all right, I'm, we're going to do this business. How did you fund it? So we built a seven-figure e-commerce business with no more than $500 each that we put in. So basically, like that $500 each, so $1,000 total, I think I want to say the cost per unit was like 30 cents. So we had like a really good gross margin of like 95% because like just the value to like perceived value was so different. And so we put in about 1000 bucks, And yeah, we basically just didn't take a paycheck for the first like two, two and a half years of the business because every dollar that we had coming back into the bank account was going out to place bigger and bigger inventory orders. And I will say, logistically, a nightmare. Like, it was so difficult to manage that cash flow. Like, that's why nowadays you'll see a lot of e commerce brands, if they're private labeling, almost none of them can survive without a line of credit from a bank. So, most of the time now, you'll see a lot of people going and like going to a bank and being like, hey, listen, we sell $5 million a year, but I need like this $250,000 to like float my next inventory order. Because, like, if we liquidate all the inventory now, we're set, but then we're out of stock for the next 90 days. So a lot of people buy on like line of credits from banks. Tell us a bit about what you're building now, the e-commerce brand with Car and Boats. I kind of have like, uh, I get very bored very easily, basically, I'll put it this way. And after we sold the business, I was like, I'm not doing anything for like the next year and I have to take this cash and I'm going to you know travel a little bit more or whatever. And then COVID happened, of course. So I was like, huh, I'm just sitting in a house all day and I'm crazy bored. I was like, what if we started another business? <laughs> and, and so I found uh, one of my buddies, Nick, who's super into cars. I was like, hey, I got this like car portrait from like my friend the other day. Like it was like one of the really cool things. He has like a BMW E30 that he loves. And he's like, maybe we can go and like sell this, like make it a little more commercial. I was like, cool, I'm done. I'll like jump on whatever. Basically, we've just been like selling like either custom or pre-made artwork for like cars, boats, all that kind of stuff lately. Motorcycles too have been like a really popular fan base. And we've just basically been like scaling up this business to the point now where like we have a really big enthusiast customer base. Like loves the product and like loves displaying and like the the core and all that kind of stuff. And it's like definitely a very fun one to write about in terms of like getting PR. So it's called Respoke Collection. And we basically do either like custom made prints of like your car, boat, motorcycle. You have people coming in like who are like truck drivers being like, Can you do my semi semi truck? And we're like, we're like, Yeah, I guess. And so we'll do a lot of stuff like that. And then we'll also do like pre-made artwork of like Mustang prints, Teslas, BMWs, Ferraris, all that stuff. How are you actually getting these printed? Technically, we do some drop shipping here actually, because what we'll go and do is since it's a custom print, uh, we can't necessarily keep stock of it. So we'll go and have a designer in house go and like create their design, whether it's the motorcycle or whatever. And then we'll use a 3PL and logistics company, uh, third party logistics is what it is. And they'll basically go and print, pack, and manufacture all of the stuff for us and ship it out to the customer. So we really just handle like 
we do like the customer service, the marketing, the sales, whatever. Then they handle the manufacturing for us, which is really nice. Have you had any issues with trademarks and things like that for selling portraits of cars like that already have brands? Not necessarily. Something we thought about in the early days, I think the big thing, because we've chatted with some of these guys, like we chatted with the BMW guys in the past. And because we created the graphic design, I think it technically falls under another class of artist interpretation. But if we specifically say buy this BMW artwork, which we do, then we can get in trouble. However, we've talked to their team a bunch of times and they're like, honestly, as long as you're not selling like really crappy stuff, like we don't care what you do. Because if anything, like us running Facebook ads on BMW products is better for their brand. I was just going to ask too, how do you promote this? Are you relying solely on Facebook ads these days? Is that your main marketing strategy? I'm sure you probably do a little bit of SEO just given maybe the brands that you were able to sell. We'll do some Facebook ads specifically on the holidays. A lot of the sales have honestly been really good partnerships that we've formed. So like we've partnered with companies like Haggerty, which is the largest car insurance company out there. We've partnered with like Road and Track. We've partnered with Car and Driver. We've partnered with like BMW Blog, like a bunch of these guys who like do a lot to like push our products. Um, and then like, you know, we'll either work with them on the affiliate model or like it benefits them to go and like promote it to their customers because we give them discounts for their customer base. So it's a lot of like partnerships, which have been really nice. How did you get into those partnerships with those people? Some of the, like the bigger companies. So many cold emails. Honestly, like that's been the playbook. Like I will go on and I will just like pull together like off Upwork or Fiverr, like a list of like 500, 1,000 emails of like the biggest publicist. And then I'll literally just email them at, like, you know, once a week until I get an answer or like a block or something like that. And it's a lot of like, your customer base wants this. We do that. Do you think that there's an opportunity to work together? And, you know, we're happy to pay. And most of the time, as long as we come in with like a really cool story and like allow them to do some photography and like own the story a little bit, they're totally cool with it. I've noticed that like one of the best ways to go and get PR, whether it's for yourself or for your brand, is make the email subject line when you're emailing these people the idea for like the content piece that they can create and they love it because it makes their job really easy. And that kind of like sparks that idea of like, oh, that could be a cool idea. Like all over 2020, a lot of the outreach that I was doing would say things like, what would it say? It would say like, here's what car enthusiasts are doing when they can't drive their car during a pandemic or something like that. I think I wordsmithed a little bit, but it was something like that. And like the opener was super high with their sponsors. Like, oh, it's actually really cool. Like we'll definitely promote it. How are you keeping your emails when you're sending so many from going to spam? You use an app called Lemwarm, L-E-M-W-A-R-M. And so basically what that'll go and do is it kind of creates a little private network of people who are able to go and like mark your emails as safe. And so you'll spend like usually two or three weeks just using the software before you even send any cold emails. And then it gets your deliverability up super high. And then you start sending the actual cold emails. In addition to starting the car and boat e-commerce business in April 2020, you also bought a tiny house blog. How did a tiny house blog even come on your radar? And why did you decide to build it? Basically, went on a little vacation with my girlfriend at the time to a tiny house up in New Hampshire, I want to say, which are you Vermont or New Hampshire? New Hampshire. And have you ever been to uh, one of like the getaway places? No, I haven't. Have you heard of them though? Nope. Okay. All right. Well, check them out. This is free marketing for getaway. Super cool trip. Basically like 40 little tiny homes up in like, you know, anywhere from like Vermont, New Hampshire. They have a bunch all throughout the country now at this point. Went, did a little getaway there. Spent like a good amount of money for like two nights. It was like good amounts, like just staying relative for a tiny house. I want to say it was like 500 bucks to stay there for two nights. I'm like, huh, like this was like a 40 foot by like 30 foot thing. Like, I wonder if we can like just do the same thing and like market it outside of like cities where people want to like escape into the nature for a little bit. I originally came back from that and I was like, yo, Gio, like we got to go and build like 20 tiny houses or whatever. The next day I was in a uh, Facebook group, I think Trends uh, Facebook group. And somebody was like, I'm selling my tiny house blog. Uh, you know, here's like the online traffic or whatever. You know, I'm selling it so much cheap. I think we bought it for like 11, 12K, something like that. I sent a screenshot of it to Gio and I was just like, maybe we just do this instead. I was like, building all this stuff seems like a lot of work. What if we just blogged about it? And so the game plan there has pretty much been like, how can we go increase the traffic? How can we go and get better affiliates? Uh, the cool part about tiny houses is that they have a super high like RPM, like revenue per thousand people hit your site. And so like the playbook has honestly just been get better affiliate links, drive more traffic to the site. And eventually, I think you know, down the line, once we have a little bit more time, we want to like sell physical products through it. So anything from like tiny house plans to like building a brokerage site for actual tiny houses to be bought and sold. You're not actually doing the blogging on this site, correct? Oh no, 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 no. We we hired bloggers off like Pro Blogger and stuff like that. 
what do you plan to do long term? Are you going to sell it? Are you going to try? Like, I mean, you just mentioned a couple of different products and services. You think you'll sell it before you get to that point, or you think you're going to build those out first, then sell it? You think you're going to just cash flow it for the indefinite future? Probably just cash flow until we have either the time or the tenacity to go and like approach it with bigger projects. Right now, it's just not totally worth the squeeze. It's like small project. We did it at the time because it was like we just sold the business, and so like this is like actually the next thing that we got into. We bought it like a month after selling the business. But no, the most part will probably be just kind of hold it. And then once either we have more time or we can bring in somebody who has more time to go and like set up like that brokerage network for it, I think that'll be really fun because then we can start listing a bunch of things. And that's where you can actually probably make some like, some serious money with it all. Because you can actually say like, hey, this tiny house costs $50,000. We're going to take like a 3% cut if we sell it. And so I think that's probably the long-term strategy. But for now, probably just hold it, just sit on it for now. So is it running pretty much all by itself now? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and nobody really touches it. You know, we've got writer who writes weekly. They write a newsletter, they write a new blog post, and then somebody who helps kind of like work on the SEO side of it all. And they just post it all for you? Yeah. Then we just make sure they get paid and that's it. When you went to buy a business like this, how did you value it? Again, typically like what I was saying before about the Amazon FBA stuff, it's like it's typically like three times EBITDA. Content sites vary dramatically, but I'd say typically it also kind of still runs the gamut of like 3x EBITDA. So like like I said, like we bought it for like I want to say like 11 or 12k. I think it was only making like three grand profit a month or sorry a year, something like that. So like so making three grand profit, we said like, hey, here's three and a half times. Here's what you make over the next three and a half years. And the guy was cool with it. Really cool guy. Still keeping in contact this day. Um, and I think we use like escrow.com to like wire all the stuff if you want like the nitty gritty of it. One month later, so I think it was May 2020, you purchased another company called Hashtag Presets. What made you want to purchase this type of business? And what is the business model with this? This one's interesting. So it's a totally digital business. We sell like digital products, which is interesting with e-commerce because you get all of the advantages of like never having to deal with the cash flow stuff, kind of like we talked about before. So that really struck my interest. I also like how it had a very unique niche. Honestly, I'll say though, like from the results, just like being totally open and honest, like we got back most of what we paid for for the business, but it's not doing as well today, mostly because A, like we just haven't had like a full-time operator in place to like run it all the time. And then B, it got very competitive very fast. Like I bought it, like doing more due diligence. And I was like, huh, like everyone's doing this right now. And it's very tough to stand out. So for that one right now, I'd honestly say like we're just kind of holding it. In the meantime, maybe thinking about selling it in the future, but it's not necessarily something that's like been exponential growth. If anything, that's been more of a learning lesson of like, make sure when I buy something in the future, I'm buying something with like diversified revenue streams and also something that has like a diversified product line that's like not just dependent on like Facebook ads, right? Because once the Facebook ads stop working, the business stops working. And we were able to kind of like milk a lot of it out of it for a little bit. But now I think we might shift the focus back to either product line expansion on it or just hold on to it and see, you know, if something comes up available in the future. I know you're pretty active on Twitter and there's another guy named Andrew Gazdecki that's very active on Twitter as well. And given that you acquire so many businesses, I'm sure you've probably come across him at some point. So have you considered uh, micro acquiring any businesses from, from him? Yes and no. I always have considered it. I think the big thing that I want to go and be mindful of is now that we've bought this tiny house thing and this hashtag thing, it's like, what's our end goal with those? And I think ultimately in hindsight, I would have been much more strategic about what we bought versus didn't buy. And I think with like MicroQuire, you'll notice that like there's a lot of really good businesses on MicroQuire. There's also a lot of businesses that people spun up in like the last three or four months. And they're just like, let's see if someone will buy this. The multiples are pretty crazy on that stuff. So one kind of like framework that I've learned just from following a lot of people who are much bigger than I am that like run a lot of businesses is when assets are really expensive, you're better off building them. When assets are really cheap, you're better off buying them. I think right now, today, January 19th of 2022, assets in everything, there's a real estate podcast, right? So like Assets and everything from real estate to software to any business you want to buy are very expensive. So it might almost make more like, and that's not to say that there are not deals everywhere. Like we just bought a storage facility three, four months ago at this point. So like you can still get a good deal anywhere, but when they're very expensive, you're probably better off building or starting your own thing. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. 
I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Let's, we, we are a real estate show, so let's talk about that, that storage <laughs> facility. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about next. We've actually had a couple of big names in the self-storage space on the show recently. Oh, cool. uh, Paul Moore, who wrote a book all about it with bigger pockets. He was just a few episodes ago. And then Nick That's- Huber was a few months back. I don't think you had much real estate experience other than now what you're doing with self-storage. So why did you decide to funnel the profits from your other businesses into real estate by jumping right into the world with self-storage? Good question. I kind of have been trying to follow this framework make money online, invest money offline. And so for me, that is pretty obvious from where I'm sitting because I can start a business, scale it up in a year and have like a seven-figure payday if I do things correctly. At my age, you can't necessarily do that in real estate unless you're using other people's money. And so for me, I wanted to go and take the money that I've made from either selling my last business or cash flowing the profits from my current business and reinvest into something that's a lot more stable and I know can just go, like either appreciate or have cash flow that I don't necessarily just have to worry about like an algorithm change messing up my day. And so I think when it came time for self storage, like you mentioned earlier, I'm pretty big or like I, I try to stay involved a lot on Twitter. And for me, it was really like, like I saw all these people making money with it. They're like you're competing against small business owners, and that was really enticing to me because I'm coming from an e-commerce background where like I'm competing against marketers all over the world. Now with the storage facility we have in Dallas, I'm competing against five people in a five mile radius. And they're all above the age of 60. And so like for me, I'm like, cool. I've been playing that game every single day of the week. And what I really started noticing when we were digging into it is like the value add deals are insane. All right. Like I'll just give you the numbers of the one that we just bought. Basically, we bought one for $393,000. We bought it through a wholesaler. So we had to like close really quickly. Like we paid all cash for it basically. And now we're like, we're actually just getting to the point where we're trying to do like an equity recapture of the business, but we paid all cash and the rents for this business where I think it was about $4,000 a month or something like that. So forgive me if I don't know the exact cap rate that we bought it off on the top of my head. It was about $4,000 a month. When you look at the way the business was being run, all right, like this is absurd. The owner was tracking rents on a whiteboard, would not accept any kind of credit card, would only accept cash, hasn't raised rates on some tenants in 30 years, occupied, I want to say about 10% of the units just with her, like, her own stuff. So like there were a ridiculous amount of value add opportunities just from like without even having to go and like necessarily clean up the facility a ton. Now we did put in about I think we're thirty to fifty thousand dollars in capex. So like everything from like a couple of new doors, some security cameras. We like 
redid all the landscape and like trying to give it a little bit more curb appeal. Right now, this is January 19th. So last month, we collected over $8,000 in rent. So like we more than doubled the NOI of the business in three months just from raising rents on people and then filling up the units even more. So like now, when we go to actually do this equity recapture, we should have a significantly increased valuation of the overall property. Yeah, I mean, if you bought it for four hundred thousand, say, I know it was three ninety three, but let's just say four hundred thousand, and you've doubled the NOI, assuming the cap rate holds steady, which it probably has in a relatively short period of time, you just doubled the value by doubling the NOI. And my thought, honestly, and maybe I'm wrong about this because you'll have people listening to this podcast who know way more about real estate than I do. I'm thinking the cap rate is going to go down as well too, only because everything that I'm seeing on market from a cap rate standpoint, and this is crazy with self storage, is like a six cap, which sounds ridiculous. Even if you're in some of these tertiary markets, they're really, really low. I think we bought it, whatever the math comes out to, I think roughly, let's call it, I want to say we bought it like a 14 cap, something ridiculously high like that. And I think it's because the wholesaler knew that he still got like a good chunk of change off just flipping it. But yeah, I, like I'm pretty happy with the outcome of it. And now in my mind said, I'm like, there's a lot more of these out there in the US. Um, and I'm, you know, I say this sparingly because I know that like when more and more people get into self-storage, eventually more people are going to start building stuff. And then eventually you're not able to charge as much. But yeah, there's a lot of opportunities out there with who just bought this stuff for retirement. They don't care about making the most money out of it. And there's a lot of value to be created. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I think cap rates probably will go down and compress, but even if they don't, because cap rates are out of your control. I mean, in reality, there's nothing you can do about cap rates, but NOI is something you can control. And just by doubling that, like you did, you've already doubled the value in your property. And then if cap rates compress, which it sounds like they probably will, and I agree, then you just get even more value from it. Exactly. That's my, that's my exact thought. How did you... I know you said you got it through a wholesaler, but how did you even get connected with that wholesaler? I, I know you're relatively remote. You're kind of all over the place, depending on... You, know, you said you're from New Jersey, you went to school in Boston, you know, that's in Dallas. So how did you even get connected with a wholesaler for a property in Dallas? This is actually a really good story. We, I was up in Rhode Island at my buddy Gio's place, and we went for like a walk, just kind of talking about like what are the things we want to accomplish between like now, the end of the year, and the next year, whatever. And this was on end of August, so like we kind of like just got back from like a little like Europe trip or whatever. And we were like saying like, hey, listen, like we want to buy a self storage facility. Like we want to buy one. We want to have one in closing before Thanksgiving. So we kind of like set a very aggressive deadline of like we got two months. We're gonna find one and we're gonna buy one. We get back to his place. He's got like an indoor gym or whatever like that. So we start working out at his place and he's on Facebook. He's like, what about this? And like, he's in a self-storage investor Facebook group. And I look at it, it's like in Dallas. I was like, he got some more information from the wholesaler or whatever like that. And it's like, yeah, like this could work. It seems decent. Like it's in Dallas. It's got uh, decent value added stuff. But like, let's go check it out. So the, like the downside is this was, day was it? this like August 30th or something like that. The wholesaler only had the contract until September 7th. And so he's like, yo, he needs to sell now and he needs all cash now. So we finished up the workout, get a few questions answered from this wholesaler, basically bought like standby tickets to Dallas. Uh, so like that day, like went from, we're going to do this before Thanksgiving to like, okay, like three hours later, we're flying to Dallas. We'll get it down to Dallas. We check into a hotel and like, we're only there for like two or three hours at this point. This is the next day, by the way, we, we took morning flights the next morning. We check in, we check into the hotel and we get a text from the wholesaler. We're like, Hey, I already found another buyer. Sorry. And we just call him immediately. We're like, dude, we just flew down here. Like, we're like, is the other guy down here? He's like, no. And we're like, was the other guy like sent you the money yet? And he's like, no. And we're like, all right, well, we're here. We have the cash. Give us a shot to at least look at the facility. And he's like, all right, that's fair. So we look at the facility. We're like, this is, this will do. Like, basically, like we didn't, we couldn't pull an inspection. We couldn't do any of this stuff. We could get a survey done, anything, which big risk in hindsight, but I think it'll be okay. Now, knowing what I know now, probably dumb, but I still think it's okay. And we basically turned around like that night, called it. It was like, yep. We asked ourselves the question because it was our first real estate deal. Like, if not this, then what? Because it checked all the boxes that we needed, like had value add opportunity, lower rents than most of the competitors in the market, a bunch of stuff like that. We're like, if we're not doing this deal, what deal are we doing? Because we started getting cold feet towards the end. Called the guy back, said, we're going to do it. Uh, you know, we, we offered a little bit more than the other guy offered. And that's why we were able to get the deal and signed everything like the next morning. So it was like a ridiculously fast turnaround. But one of those things where I'm very happy that we did it because if not, I think it's very easy to say like, you know, you get a little cold feet and you like don't want to go and like move as quickly. I think it gave us the confidence to know that we can do this at other self-storage facilities as well. And for me, it's always been a really important concept to get skin in the game. Like before I was like, I want to get into real estate. I don't know how to get into real estate. Now it's like, no, not only am I in real estate, like I 
to this big value add play on this one deal. And now I'm going to go and repeat this across several other self-storage facilities throughout Texas or the rest of the US. On this podcast, I talk a lot about my deals, which are long distance, but not in self-storage or commercial real estate. I'm mostly in the small residential real estate. So rental properties. So, but I'm doing it long distance too. And people are really interested in that. Every time I, I talk about long distance stuff, people always reach out and people are really interested. So I'm curious, how are you doing this? How are you managing this property now? I mean, I understand how you got it. You flew down there, all of that, but now you've acquired it. How are you managing it on a day-to-day basis now that you are all over the globe? It's honestly not as bad as you would think. So we've got a call center set up. Um, the software that we use, we, we use their call center and they basically will go and like book rentals for us. Like, you know, you know, I'm down in Mexico right now. Literally, I, no exaggeration, was sitting on a beach uh, last Friday. Today is Wednesday. And uh, get three emails on my phone that our call center booked three units for us. And I was like, this is the coolest feeling in the world. I was like, I did nothing. And we just filled up three units that were open at the facility. So the call center handles a lot of like, the customer inquiries and things like, things like that. We've got a part-time property manager who will go through one to two times a week for a couple hours, help clean out units, help sweep the facility, things like that. That's honestly most of it. We'll do a lot of the marketing by ourselves on our computer just because we don't need to be there in person. But mostly like it's having a property manager who's available on site, not full-time, just like part-time. And then also a call center to handle most of the customer questions. Did the property manager come with the property or did you have to find them yourself? She came with the property, which I've heard a lot of like, you know, be careful with this kind of stuff in the past, just because like they might have like bad habits from the previous owner, but she's worked out really well for us so far. You publicly post about your goals on your website. And the first one you have listed down is to own $5 million worth of real estate in 2022. Part of the activities that you have listed to get to that goal is to make 125 offers and 2,500 cold calls. I did a little math and that's just about 10 and a half offers a month and seven and a half cold calls per day every single day for the entire year. How did you come up with these goals and how are you actually implementing them on top of all the activities that you've listed to hit all your other goals and the things you're doing with your other businesses? All right. Probably not the answer you want to hear, but the best answer is I made it up uh, in terms of like, how did I come up with the $5 million number? Just thought it sounded like a cool number. And it was also, it was partially, it sounds like a cool number. It's also partially, I don't know if I can get much bigger than this without requiring a bunch of other people's money. And right now the goal is to like, aside from debt and using banks and stuff like that, I think I can reasonably get to 5 million without like having no money to buy food and calling my uncle and you know all this stuff. So that was mostly where the inspiration for the 5 million came from in terms of the activities. It's a lot of outsourcing stuff. Like it's a lot of like bringing in people to be like, hey, do you want to go and like get experience in real estate? Like I'll pay you if you get a lead or like I'll pay you for your time or whatever like that. And so reinvesting a lot of the profits that we're making from the storage facility that we have right now into acquisition and like deal finding and stuff like that. So like running Google ads, calling people, things like that. So yeah, I'd say it's honestly like I think most people make the mistake of either not setting goals or they set a goal and they don't know what it takes to get to that goal. I wanted to be very realistic about it, like, cool, if this is my goal, then I need to go and do these activities. Because I think at some point, real estate just becomes a numbers game. You, know, you just have to go and do enough outbound reaches, make you know, underwrite enough things, make enough offers. And then eventually someone's tired. Someone doesn't want to run their business anymore. They're going to say yes. And so for me, what I always tend to find is like, I'll do like monthly reflections of like, cool, am I trending towards where I want to be with my goals? And if the answer is no, then I'd say, okay, well, what have I done to get me there? And it's kind of like what you and I were talking about with the fitness stuff before. It's like, everyone knows how to get in shape, right? You eat better, you work out more, um, you know, maybe eat a little bit less if you want to lose some weight. But like, the fact of the matter is, if it hits January 31st, and I'm like, huh, I don't have a six pack yet. And I'm like, well, what did I do? Well, I didn't go to the gym at all. And I ate and went out and drank with my friends every night. It's like, that makes sense, right? So like, what I don't want to run to is a situation where it's December 31st of 2022. And I'm like, well, I don't own any more real estate. Why did that happen? Oh, Connor, like, I didn't make any phone calls or I didn't like have to make any offers. And so that's what I'm going to start trying to change. I mean, like, we're tracking some of that with like HubSpot CRM and things like that. A problem that I have is working on too many things at once. So that's mm-hmm. something I'm really, really trying to focus on in 2022. And to me, it sounds like you have a lot going on, potentially uh, too much. I mean, I can't say uh, it's too much, right? It, only you can, but... What are your thoughts around focus versus doing a little bit of everything? Do you think you could be more successful at one of your ventures if you focused your entire time and energy on it? Absolutely. Yeah. It goes back to that college question you asked earlier. Why don't I not drop out of college? Could have been way bigger. I have more fun doing more stuff. 
the honest answer is like, do I think I can do way more in the real estate space, the e-commerce space, whatever, if I'm only focusing on one thing throughout the entire week? Absolutely. And I would, I would make like big bets around that. For me though, I just have a ton of different interests. And I think the thing that helps me not burn out or get like very like pigeon-brained is dedicating certain days to doing certain things. Also making sure that whatever business I'm starting, whether it's you know real estate, e-commerce, even like having a podcast and having co-hosts on the podcast, just making sure that I have one of the person who's involved with it with me. And so I know specifically like what are my responsibilities? What are their responsibilities? I actually don't run any businesses where it's just me because I know then I'll be like the last line of defense if something goes wrong. It's really nice to have like someone else there that could also like share some of their responsibilities. What has been the most influential book in your life? Books that I've actually started and finished entirely. Two that I really like, especially from an e-commerce standpoint. One is Dotcom Secrets by Russell Brunson. Really good. Explains this whole concept around value ladders and like how to go and like psychologically like influence people. And the other one is one I actually just finished up this year, and it's actually like a pretty trendy book now. So you might have already heard the name, or someone else mentioned it. But Hundred Million Dollar Offers. That one's really good too. And one I just finished that's also trendy this year is The Nevalmanac. I get very skeptical referring books that I say I liked. Kind of seemed like an ego boost, or whatever. But like I didn't actually finish all three of those books. I could not put down. I read cover to cover, and they were all like super great in terms of like reframing like some mental models that I had in my own head. I've read Dot Com Secrets and I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Almanac and Naval is probably my favorite book of all time. Oh yeah, cool. And uh, the second one you mentioned, the hundred million dollar offers. I haven't read that yet, but I have it on my list. I think I might have bought it already, but I haven't read it yet. So I'm I'm interested in diving into that one. It's one of those where like, so I follow Alex Ramosi who wrote it like on like YouTube and Twitter, and he's got really good content. One of those books where like you get it in the mail, you're like, is this really the book? Because like if anyone has seen it, it's like a, almost like a textbook size, but it's only like 100 pages. So this is an obnoxiously large hardcover book uh, with like 100 pages. You can read it in like a day, like if you're a slow reader, like read it in a week. And it changes the way that you think about sales and marketing. It'll like totally reconstruct like how to go and take down buyers' objections, how to go and set up your funnel, your offers, all this kind of stuff. It's really, really helpful. There's another book. Uh, the, it's like the Alm- the Naval Almanac, but there's one for Charlie Munger. And it's a similar... Yeah. I haven't seen the $100 million offer book yet, but the Charlie Almanac book is similar. It's like a textbook size, but it's not that big. It's just like not a ton of pages. Well, isn't that one... All right, correct me if I'm wrong. And, and I'm not opposed to spending money for books. Isn't that like $80? Because I want to like you know, buy like five books at one point because I'm always in the mindset of like, just buy them. If I read them, they're like, I'll get good insights. If I don't, it's 50 bucks, whatever. And then I went to go down to that one. It's like, that one's like 80 bucks. And I was like, all right, maybe I'm going to hold off on this one until like I finish these other four or whatever first. Yeah. I think when I bought it, it was 50, but it, yeah, it might be like 70 or 80 now. Yeah. But definitely like taking Charlie Munger's advice for $70. Yeah. hundred percent worth it. Just like when you benchmark it compared to a bunch of other like eight and $9 books, you're like, wow, like $50 or a book, like a little expensive, but yeah, I got to read that one too. I know we just chatted on your podcast with me as a guest not long ago, which I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes for anyone that's interested in checking it out. But I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guests ask me a question. So Connor, to wrap up, what, what question do you have for me? Honestly, the one thing that you just said, where like in 2022, you're focusing a lot more on one, maybe two things instead of doing all this other stuff. Because like what was interesting about our call on, on our podcast a while ago, was like you're doing this podcast stuff, you're doing RV rentals, you're doing the single family rentals, like long-term rentals or sorry, long distance rentals. Like, what's your new focus for 2022? What are you trying to like make your thing in 2022? I don't know yet. That's the problem. Okay. <laughs> the thing I know is that I'm focusing. Like my focus right now is to focus. I don't know what I'm gonna actually be focusing on. It's very meta. Honestly, I'm still trying to decide. You know, like it's thankfully what you said, January 19th. So thankfully we're not too far into the year yet. I'm hoping by like the end of the month, maybe. I'll know. I mean, even in just 19 days, I've gone back and forth probably a hundred times on like what exactly yeah. it is that I really want to focus on. You know, a lot of the stuff that I do, the podcast, the rentals, the RV stuff, like a lot of it is pretty streamlined. Not to say that it doesn't take, you know, some of my time because it does, but it's pretty streamlined. It doesn't take a ton of time. So I I just need to find that one thing that I want to focus on. And it's it's kind of a, an interesting dynamic of do I want to only do something that I can make money on or do I want to kind of focus on a hobby? Like I've always I've wanted to know how to code for probably a decade now. I'm, I'm turning 27 next week, so literally probably since I was 17 or 18, I've wanted to know how to code, and I've just never taken the time. So I'm like wondering, like, 
you know, should that be one of the things that I just kind of dive into now? I probably won't make any money from it, but is it a hobby that I just want to learn? Yeah. You know, so I don't know yet. We'll see. The only thing I know that I'm focusing on is trying to focus. There is a really good interview with Tim Ferriss, and I think it's Derek Silvers. And I'm, I think that's a really good one that might be saying his name wrong. But basically, Derek had some quote throughout the podcast that was like specifically around focus, where he's like some story around like there was this cow in a barn and for anyone listening to this, just listen to this podcast episode afterwards because I'm going to do a terrible job explaining the story. Um, but there's this cow in the barn. On the right side of the cow, he had water. On the left-hand side, he had hay, right? So like, and he had enough. It was an infinite supply that he could drink as much as he wanted to and he could go and eat as much as he wanted to and become like a really fat cow and just like live his life that way. Cow ended up starving and dying because he couldn't make up the decision on if he wanted to drink the water first and then eat the hay or eat the hay and then drink the water. And I think you know, he wanted to do both at the same time, realistically. And it, this is just like an interesting story. And like, like I'm telling the story from a standpoint of someone who works on like five or six businesses right now, right? But it's an interesting way to kind of think about focus where the moral of the story is you can do everything that you want to do. If you want to you know, get big in real estate, you can get big in real estate. If you want to go and grow a huge podcast, you can grow a huge podcast. It's very difficult to do everything you want to do at the same time. And I think a lot of people our age, you know, you're 26, I'm 24. Like We don't realize how long life really is. And that you can go and just spend two to three years doing something and then start an entirely new career. And you're still young as hell, right? That's what Gary Vaynerchuk talks about all the time. And so I think to the, your point about focus, it's like find the thing that you want to do that will maybe enable doing other things to be a lot easier, right? And so, like, an example of that could honestly probably be how do you make this like a top 10 podcast, right? Because then once you have the top 10 podcast, any of the network to make investing in real estate a lot easier, the cash flow to make investing in real estate a lot easier. So, just kind of like thinking through stuff like that, I always found that to be like a really helpful story. Yeah, I would definitely be that cow in that yeah. in that story for sure. And yeah, when I was prepping for this this interview, I was thinking about Gary Vee when I was looking at this focus. I'm like, Gary talks about how he juggles. Like he's only happy if he juggles seven, eight balls at once. And he's like, listen, right. I'm going to drop one or two of these balls and they're going to smash on the ground, but I'm having fun doing seven or eight balls at once. And, and I was just thinking of you doing a very similar model. Yeah. For me, it's all about like, Honestly, entrepreneurship is a thousand times harder than having a job. Anyone who says quit your job and start your business, like I think it's a horrible advice to anybody who has a job because you don't realize that like this game, this entrepreneurship game, it never turns off. It's not 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and I'm closed in the laptop. Like this is always going. And so I think anybody who has the advice of like just go and start your business is lying to themselves. And so for me, the only way that I think I can really have fun throughout all of it is to like satisfy my curiosity and like start a bunch of stuff, even if some of the stuff like like I talked about, like the hashtag preset thing that we bought isn't doing that well. I'm gonna have some strikeouts, right? Like it's not always gonna be pretty, but with enough at bats, you'll eventually find the stuff that you find that you really enjoy doing and also the stuff that can make you a lot of money, which is cool. Connor, for people who have enjoyed this episode, want to connect with you. I know you're big on Twitter. So tell us your Twitter handle and everywhere that people can find you. Yeah, honestly, the best two spots where I put out the most content is Twitter at C underscore GRO. And then my own podcast, if you want to go check out Robert's episode too, uh, it's called The Next Generation Podcast. Um, you can download it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I'll put a link to Connor's Twitter and my podcast episode and just his general podcast feed in the show notes below for anybody that's interested. I'll put a link to the books that we talked about as well for anybody that's interested in checking those out. Connor, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.